Hello, listeners. This is Donnelly, and I'll be your host for this week's DevCast again. Uh, with me today, I have someone you might have heard about or read about, or maybe you've even had a chance to see one of his very intricate presentations. We will talk a little bit more about that in a short while. Um, I'm very happy to have James Mickens here. Hello, James. How, how are you? Good, good. Maybe you can start by telling us who you are in your own words. Yeah, sure. So uh, basically, I work right now as a researcher at Microsoft Research out in uh, Redmond in Washington. Uh, and so, you know, a little bit of more background about me. So I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up there. I went to high school there. Uh, I stayed in Atlanta for college. I went to Georgia Tech. And while I was there, I got a bachelor's degree in computer science. Then I graduated from Georgia Tech. I decided to go up to uh, the University of Michigan uh, to go to graduate school. And while I was there, I got a PhD in computer science. And during my time as a graduate student, I actually had two internships at Microsoft Research. So first I had an internship at the Cambridge Lab out in the UK. And then I had a second internship uh, at the Redmond Lab. Uh, and then when I graduated from Michigan with my PhD, I actually returned to Microsoft Research to work there full time as a researcher. And in fact, I actually joined the same group, the distributed systems group that I had interned with the previous year. So that's where I am right now. It sounds like a very cool journey. How, how did you get in contact with the Microsoft Research in Cambridge when you were studying at the university back in the US? Uh, what happened is that I gave a presentation at a conference. And uh, this was at a, a academic conference, a research conference. And so there were some people who attended that conference who were from Microsoft Research from various branches. Uh, Microsoft Research has a bunch of different labs all over the world. So we have labs in Redmond, uh, uh, in Boston, in the UK, uh, in Beijing, uh, and in India as well. Uh, and so there were some people who uh, attended that conference, heard my talk, these folks worked at Microsoft Research, and they basically said, hey, uh, we're interested in what you're doing. Perhaps you'd like to come out here and, uh, you know, have a research a research internship with us. And uh, at that point in my life, I'd never been to England. It sounded very exciting. You know, I'd read, uh, you know, Oliver Twist stuff. I'd never been there myself, so I went <laughs> over there. It was actually pretty crazy. It was during a World Cup year. And so, as you know, Europeans and the British are very excited about soccer. So I was an American. I didn't quite understand what this whole soccer thing was all about. <laughs> So, for example, I called it soccer instead of the internationally approved name, which is football. Football, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was uh, heckled pretty badly over there, uh, but it was a character-building experience. I never forget, I would walk out uh, along the pitch, that's what they call it, like a, like a park. And so during the, the games, they would put up these huge movie screens and show the, uh, the, the soccer games, like when England was playing. So I said, okay, well, when in England, do what the British do. And so I went out there and I'd say, yeah, come on, England, I'd root for England. And then these British folks would come up and they'd say, yeah, excuse me, mate, are you from the States? I'd say, yeah, I'm from the States. And they'd say, uh, didn't your soccer team lose to Papua New Guinea in like the preliminary pre-qualifying round? <laughs> and it was upsetting because that was actually true. We had actually lost at that level. Uh, so, you know, I had to have my self-confidence kick down a few notches. But all in all, it was a great experience. Uh, and so, yes, that's how I got hooked up with the Cambridge people. Long story short. Interesting. Do you, do you still follow the World Cup when it comes to soccer or what we call football? <laughs> Uh, so I do mainly because I love the international rivalries. I feel that <laughs> the World Cup is like the only 
in you where it's okay to be jingoistic and nationalistic. And so, you know, if you were just to go up to someone in the lunch line and be like, hey, you're French, I hate you, that would be completely unacceptable. But, you know, during the World Cup year, you can actually say that. You can, you can hate entire nations, and that's actually acceptable for some reason. So I find that aspect very entertaining. Yeah, sports is a, it's an interesting field. I, I yeah. don't follow sports that much, but I did uh, get dragged into football. Uh, whenever there's a World Cup, you can't miss it when you live in Europe. <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, it's very interesting to see how much uh, passion these countries put into these games. I mean, it's just a game, but you particularly the British announcers are the funniest announcers because they just put so much, you know, just they, they make everything sound so much bigger than it is. I mean, it could be, you know, just like a friendly match. And these British announcers are like, you know, these two countries fighting like angry animals in the jungle for the <laughs> queen, for country. And you're like, what are you talking about? This is not Lord of the Rings. But it's very interesting to listen to them. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is that I, I, I noticed that there's more and more interest in um I'm I'm not sure if you're very into gaming, but I think um the yeah. gaming is considered as a very professional sporting in- industry as well. And I find the the people that uh how do you say monitor those games are just as as enthusiastic as the player themselves. So that's also very interesting to listen to. Oh, yeah, that stuff's super intense, man. I was just watching, um, there was some tournament for, I forget what it was, maybe like Call of Duty, something like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's super intense, particularly these first-person shooters. Because they'll have this, you know, there's some person and, you know, he's, 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 he's pinned down by sniper fire, and then he'll just jump up and then just like take out four people at once, and the crowd goes nuts. It's like they literally had just won World War II over again. It's just so intense, and people are just fighting in these online virtual worlds. It's very entertaining. Yeah, I'm, I'm super fascinated and inspired by people that are so passionate about what they're doing. So that's yeah. that's cool. So so what are you what are, what is your passion right now at Microsoft Research? What do you what do you immerse yourself into nowadays? Uh, so at a high level, I investigate distributed systems. So that's the group that I'm in. I work in the distributed systems group. And uh, broadly speaking, a distributed system is a set of two or more machines that collaborate to get something done. So a lot of the web services that you use, you can think of as being great examples of distributed systems. So for example, when you go to Facebook, you know, you click like on some photo of, you know, a silly dog doing a silly thing, that single click, you know, may trigger activity and messages that are exchanged between, you know, tens or hundreds of machines potentially even. And so I I basically look at ways to make uh, distributed systems more efficient, more secure, um, and, you know, uh, perform better. And so uh, basically, my, my research focuses on two topics in particular. So first of all, I look at data center scale storage systems. So these are the storage systems that support uh, large scale services like Azure or Facebook or Gmail or things like that. So I look at how to make those storage systems um, faster and how to make them uh, scale up to larger uh, data set sizes. So that's one thing that I research. The other thing that I research is uh, the client side of web applications. And in particular, I look at JavaScript frameworks. So JavaScript is the programming language that enables rich client-side web pages. Uh, So using JavaScript, the page can handle user inputs, create animations, exchange data with remote servers, you know, so on and so forth. So I look at ways to build JavaScript libraries to improve the performance 
uh, and security of web pages. So as one short example, I worked on this project that does record and replay for web pages. So the basic idea here is that web pages actually break all the time. I mean, you know, we've all been using our online email client or a social networking site or whatever. You click on something, you should see something, but you don't, mm. right? And so uh, this tool that I worked on is a way for developers to actually think of it as record uh, sort of like a movie of all of the events that took place on your web page so that when things break, you can send that movie back to the developers um, and they can basically step through that buggy execution sort of event by event and determine exactly how it is that uh, that bug arose. And so the technical term for this is deterministic logging and replay. But the basic idea, like I said, is to, is to basically take a bug on your machine, ship it over to the developer machine so that he or she can actually see the evolution of the bug, you know, sort of step by step and figure out what's going on. That's interesting. Did, wasn't that included as a application in Windows 7, I think? I think it was a step step problem recorder or something similar? So, so there's a bunch of different technologies uh, involving debugging that are inside Windows or inside um, you know, debugging tools or things like that. So for example, like Windows has a tool called um, like Windows Error Report, mm-hmm. um, which is more like a snapshotting tool. So for example, uh, maybe you'll have an application um, like Word that crashes, then a little box will pop up and say, hey, do you mind sending some information back to Microsoft? Uh, and if you click yes, then we'll essentially get some um, some of the state of your machine at the time of that crash, like maybe some pieces of uh, of, of of the memory image or or things like that. Um, and so, uh, with respect to the particular tool I was talking about, it it was designed for um, for web pages. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're looking right now into thinking about different ways we can apply that that specific technology internally to to the company. Right. Uh, I know that. Um... The Swedish people are very aware of um, their personal data not being shared with mm-hmm. someone they don't trust. How would uh, this application handle your personal data, so to speak, when you send a bug report to Microsoft? Yeah, that's right, right. I think that's a good question. And actually, that's one of the big things, of uh, the big sort of technology challenges that I think the industry is going to be facing over the next couple of years, this notion of data privacy. Mm-hmm. I think that before large-scale web services took off, People didn't really think about privacy all that much in the digital context. But I think that what's ended up happening is that, for example, people are on these social networks now, right? And so you have these big issues of, um, you know, who can see, which one of my friends can see which set of things I've posted. And also people just get worried about, um, you know, what does Facebook get to see? You know, what does Google or Microsoft get to see? And, you know, getting back to your question, you see these same issues with some of these debugging tools. Right? Because ostensibly, when companies provide these debugging tools, they're to help users out. Right, When you send information back to Google or back to Adobe or Firefox or Microsoft, you're presumably doing that because those companies want to help you yeah, by building yeah. better products. But you're exactly correct that the data that you send may actually contain you know, what they call, what is it, uh, PII, mm-hmm. uh, personally identifying information. And so I think one key thing to address some of these concerns is to make all of these debugging tools opt-in, right? So in other words, the user has to explicitly uh, click a box or, or do something to indicate that, yes, I explicitly allow this data to be sent to you know whoever that company is. Um, so I think that's one important thing to do. I think a second important thing to do is to somehow scrub that data in some way such that it does not reveal 
you know, things that are that are that are incriminating or that might tightly tie any particular user um, to that particular data set. Um, so that's actually uh, easier said than done. It's actually pretty tricky to um, you know scrub a data set in a way that both hides who the user was, but also still leaves. Um, that data useful for debugging. So that's actually an active area of research. So I don't have all the answers there, but I think that's also a very important aspect of the data privacy issue too. Yeah, I find that to be a very interesting area um, to look into. And uh, I mean, I, I, I personally have the mantra of always thinking that anything I do online will never be just for my own eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. never something that's boxed in. And I... I, I I just and at the same time I don't feel like I'm that much of an interesting person that somebody else would be interesting in looking into the details of what I'm doing. So I I don't feel I'm not well, super concerned about those things, but I'm always worried of, you know, what it might be used in the future. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you'd be surprised. I mean, first of all, I think you're very interesting. I only <laughs> do podcasts with people who are interesting. So <laughs> okay, thank that. you. That's awesome. Second of all, I'd say that um even data that you think is mundane can actually be very interesting to people who want to make money off of it, right? So, so one one thing that's slowly starting to enter the popular consciousness is this, is this notion of targeted advertising, right? So it's this notion that let's say you and I both go to CNN, there's going to be some ad at the top, right? We're both going to get different ads. So why is that? Well, the reason we're both going to get different ads is because you know these ad networks have uh, basically been tracking the things that we look at. You know, maybe even sometimes the things that we buy and trying to trying to basically place us into uh, into clusters, into bins. Right. So maybe, you know, you might get uh, an ad for some music performer because, you know, these advertisers know that you like certain types of music, whereas maybe I might get an ad for, I don't know, uh, let's say travel, for example, because they know that I've been traveling a lot recently. And so, you know, how do they do that targeting? Well, you know, from our perspective, these things that we're doing may not seem super interesting. Maybe I went to a travel site and looked up some fares. Maybe I went to Amazon. I didn't buy anything. I just looked at a couple things. No big deal, right? But what what actually ends up happening is that your uh, online activity in aggregate can actually reveal a lot of things about you. So, you know, I think it's actually pretty challenging to figure out how to balance this tension between respecting privacy and keeping web services free because if you think about it a lot of these web services that we use we don't pay for it in money yeah right which is nice but the way that we actually pay for it is in privacy right because because the these services can can serve these ads that are highly um, specific to the things that, that the advertisers think that you or i will like so we are paying for these services just not in money and so the tension is well we want to keep these services free because nobody likes to pay for stuff using money. But if we're not going to allow for targeted advertising, how are we going to support that ecosystem? How are these services going to make money? So I think there's actually a lot of really interesting research challenges there about you know, privacy-preserving ads. You know, Is there some way that you can target ads in a way that keeps click rates high, or as high as they are right now, mm-hmm. but doesn't necessarily expose some of your private information to that advertising uh, service? Yeah, I guess... I guess, um, how do you say, generalization or grouping would be, would feel less, um, how do you say, less intrusive to a person. I, I know I was, 
I was on a, a web shop the other day and I bought some socks for my dad for his Christmas mm-hmm. gift. Um, now, this podcast will be air after Christmas, so I'm not going to spoil his yeah. boring Christmas gift. But um, after I purchased those socks, when I went to the social media site, I got ads for the same sock, which right. is which is a little bit strange to me. I actually like targeting ads. I rather have targeting ads that might be that I might be interested in, rather than general ads that I'm definitely don't want to see. But in this case, I've already bought these socks. I don't want to see ads for the same socks again for this from the same website. So I don't know. I, I wish uh, there were more smarter way of uh, doing these targeted ads. I would appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because I think you're correct that a lot of people would prefer to see ads that are relevant, right? They prefer to see ads that are actually related to the things that they, you know, movies they might want to see or things they might want to buy, so on and so forth. But I think one of the big problems, though, is that, um, you know, what's the scope uh, of, 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 of data leakage? In other words, so the advertisers know that you like, you know, uh, watching the Transformers movies and that you like buying socks, but then who else are they going to give that information to? So mm. like another uh, good example is like medical privacy. So yeah. what if somehow, you know, these services could figure out that, you know, you've gone to sites X, Y, and Z, therefore that means that you have some disease, right? What does that mean? What does it mean if people can determine your political affiliation based on your web browsing histories? Uh, it's very interesting. So so I think there's, there's a tension between all these different factors that as a researcher, I get very excited by, but as a layperson, I get a little bit concerned, like, because I've had that exact same thing happen. Mm. Like I've looked up something on Amazon.com. I haven't even been logged in. I just want to look up right, something, right. you know, but then I go to, you know, some other site and it's like, here's that thing you were just looking at. It's like, oh dear, do people think that I actually like My Little Pony? Because I don't <laughs> want to look it up just because you know, I got curious about something. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. The medical aspect is a little bit more, more airy in case you're, maybe you're looking up something, just search for uh, some symptoms and then maybe right. you surf through a look for a health insurance and they might know about that and maybe exactly. deny use insurance or maybe raise the price for, for something. So yeah, I right. agree. It's, it's a sensitive issue. Um, anyway, back to your research. Um, you mentioned these two main areas that you're focusing on. Um, within a year, what, what do you wish to have accomplished? Uh, so I think that one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to deal with scale. So that sounds very buzzwordy, uh, but I mean, you know, what do I mean by scale? By scale, I mean that uh, you know these web services actually have to deal with with millions or tens of millions of users, uh, and we want these sites to be very responsive. You know, we want them to load quickly when we submit a comment on Facebook or you know send an email, something like that. We want those things to happen very quickly, and so you know that's a challenge as an engineer, as a researcher. How do we build systems that maintain those properties? Um, so I think that. You know, in the next year, one of the sort of personal goals I've set for myself is to try to understand this problem of scale a little bit more. So actually, I want to come to a better, or should I say, a more precise definition of scale, right? So scale gets thrown around a lot. People say, oh, I have a large-scale service. This thing has to work at large scale. But what does that actually mean? There's actually a bunch of different metrics along which you could evaluate scale. You could evaluate it in terms of the number of users your service has to support. You could evaluate it in terms of the number of machines you think that you might need to service those users. You could define scale in terms of throughput. You know, how many requests per second do you do you want your service to handle? And so one thing that I'm very interested in uh, in that coming months is sort of just taking some time to think about fundamentally what are people saying when they talk about scale? 
you know, it could be that a service has to scale in terms of it has to support a large number of users, but maybe it doesn't need a very large number of machines. That'd be right. very interesting, right? Because a lot of people typically think, oh, this is a huge scale web service. I need thousands of machines. That may or may not be true, right? Alternatively, there may be some services that don't actually have that many users, but the things that those users are asking the service to do are super intensive, computationally speaking, or store speaking. So maybe in that case, you maybe I'm thinking, for example, like maybe some type of interesting data analytics platform. You don't have very many analysts who are humans, right? But the 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 computations that they're running are actually. I'm quite intensive in terms of how much data they access and how much computational power you need. So that's a different type of scale. So anyways, that's one of the the sort of big questions that I want to think about in the upcoming year. Oh, interesting. Uh, I actually got a a question from a journalist a couple weeks ago. It was very strange um, to me. She she asked Mm -hmm. me whether I believe that um, due to the large amount of data that we're saving nowadays he was wondering if i ever believe that we will run out of space on earth to store mm-hmm. them on and it, it i got a little bit taken aback i didn't really know how to answer that um in a proper correct way but right it, it, it's somehow with her the scale was very connected to the machines the physical machines and that the physical mm-hmm. machines would have to have a um a, a physical space on earth um, that well, was one thing a that I would say is that, um, I mean, so storage capacities are actually growing super, super quickly, right? So, so you know, hard disks are getting bigger and bigger every every year. And in fact, that's actually a bit of a problem in the sense that hard disks are getting more capacity, but they're not actually getting more IOPS, more IOs per second. And that's a little bit tricky because if you think about it, let's say that you keep your data set size constant, then if hard disks are getting bigger, you need fewer hard disks to store that amount of data, right? right? Well, that's problematic from the perspective of performance, right? Because that means that you have fewer spindles, you have fewer I disk see. heads to actually service uh, the, the same amount of workload. So so I'm actually, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. I'm actually not concerned that we're gonna run out of storage space. I'm actually concerned that we're going to run out of IOPS. We're gonna run out of performance. Mm. So this is actually one of the other things that I'm looking for, um, that one of the challenges that I'm thinking about in, in the upcoming years is how can we sort of take storage that is, uh, or at least when we talk about hard disks, we have these hard disks, they're getting bigger in capacity, but not in terms of seeks per second. And then how can we actually address this problem? Right, because it's true that we have these data sets that are bigger and bigger, and it's true that some of our um, workloads, um, you know, can afford to be sort of asynchronous, or we don't, they don't have to have high performance. But you know, a lot of times people will tell you, "Oh, SSDs will solve everything." Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's true. Right? It is true that SSDs are super fast, but compared to the cost, you know, the dollars per byte, let's say, that hard disks give you, SSDs are much more expensive. And as far as I can tell. The price curves for SSDs and hard disks are not intersecting. So in other Mm. words, I don't think that at any point in the near future, it will actually be cheaper to store an equivalent amount of data on an SSD. So what that means is that somehow as an industry, you know, the the cloud industry or whatever, trademark, uh, you know, we have to figure out some way to somehow um, continue to extract high performance from hard disk technology, even though hard disks are in a certain sense, scaling in the opposite direction that we want. You know, they're giving us more capacity, but not more throughput. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, you, 
you mentioned that you also look very much into the JavaScript, uh, and yes. uh, you held a talk about it at Dev. Uh, a right. web developer conference that was held in Malmö, Sweden, in right. early November, I think. Right. And uh, can you, for the ones who ha- haven't seen it yet, I will link uh, to it uh, at the show notes below. But uh, could you give a little brief, <laughs> brief summary of what the talk was about for the listener who sure. hasn't seen it yet? Sure. And first, yeah. I, I want to congratulate you on your proper accent because I, I always say Malmo, <laughs> but you actually pronounce. The umlauts, which I congratulate you on. Oh, that's uh, good, because I, <laughs> I was born yeah. in Sweden. Otherwise, it would be a little bit sad. <laughs> no, good, good. Well, yeah, when I first heard that, I'm like, what? <laughs> what conference is she talking about? I went to Ordev, not <laughs> Udev. Or, you know, I went to Malmo. I didn't go to Mumo, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'll practice that. I'll practice that in my my spare time. So yeah, so at uh, at Urudev, uh, I gave a talk entitled uh, "Life is Terrible." Let's talk about the web. And this talk essentially described my love-hate relationship with web technologies. I mean, it's basically all hate, but really you have to hate something to make it better. I think that Socrates said that, so it's probably good advice. But anyway, so in this talk, I provided you know, what I perceive to be a humorous perspective on the flaws of JavaScript uh, and web browsers. Uh, and you know, to me, the thing that I find so interesting about these web technologies is that the web has just grown so quickly, right? And mm. and you know now we depend on on web services for so much of our everyday life. So we get our email through web services. We do a lot of our shopping through e-commerce sites. We keep in touch with our friends and these social networking sites, so on and so forth. So we've got these websites that are super super important to our lives, and it's really a miracle that they work at all. Like if you look at web technologies, you know, you'll see that these things are actually quite brittle. So, for example, one thing that I don't recommend you to do if you want to stay happy in this world is to go to your favorite website, open up your JavaScript debugging console in your browser, and then hit refresh. And you will oftentimes see this huge list of JavaScript errors, right, on these sites that you use every day. And that's super troubling, right? So, for example, if you were to open up, you know, Microsoft Word or Adobe Acrobat or whatever, if it were constantly spitting out errors, you would be deeply concerned. You would want to go burn down a castle or something like that. <laughs> but for some reason, we've it's essentially accepted this this truism that web pages just aren't generally going to work. You know, you go to a web page and like, you know, every 10th time that the, you know, images will be missing or the layout will be completely ridiculous. So what do we do? We say, oh, well, that's the way that life should be. You try to hit refresh, hope that something better happens. And I think that's just completely ridiculous. You know, so so I really like to, I, I think it's sort of entertaining to sort of poke fun at um at these things, because if you were to go to, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, any other, you know, tech hub in the world, these web developers get so excited about their technologies. You know, I mean, you think that these people are selling you your rocket ships or something <laughs> like this. And so they have all these slick websites and they you know try to tell you all these shiny bells and whistles about how their platform works. And it's like, does it actually work? I mean, like it kind of works. But then when you look at all these websites, they, they look you know, superficially nice, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like as soon as you buy a car, that car immediately starts getting worse. It will never get better. 
at best, it will stay in the same state for a while, but then it will eventually decline to okay <laughs> right? So website, to me, that's like what it's like to go into a new website. I'm like, oh, look at this. It's so neat, and it's all reactive, and it's got these rounded rectangles and stuff like that. And then you start using it, I'm like, oh, man, but, but that mouse over, you know, click out menu box actually doesn't work. It's like, oh, man, but then look at that CSS. Do they really mean to do that? It can just, it can only get worse, really. So, you know, I'd like to tell people that my, my order dev talk was a message of hope. That'd be a lie. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a message of hope. But, you know, you should still watch it because, you know, it's useful to know what's what's in this terrible world of ours, I guess. So totally go watch it. I, I feel like I ended that, that summary like on a, on a down note. But really, it's a, it's a quite excellent talk. It, I mean, it is deeply depressing. But, you know, so is life. I really don't know what to say about that. So just, you know, go go hug a loved one after you watch the talk or something. I, I don't know if you get a puppy, hang out with a puppy or something. Well, life always ends badly, so. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. See, that's true. And I think that children should hear that so that they don't get unnecessarily optimistic. People don't believe me. But, I mean, listen, you just got to – gotta. it's like, you know, I think that every kindergartner should read Nietzsche. Because, listen, that's the way the world is. You know, they say, oh, man, I'm sad. Well, why are you crying, little man? They say, oh, I didn't get any candy today. Well, guess what? Ultimately, your body's going to reject you, and then you're going to die, and then that's it. So, like, so are you crying about your candy now? Oh, you're not. See? So there you go. You learned something. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I can also highly recommend watching that, um, that, that session. And I know a lot of the ones that were uh, participating at the conference thought that your session was the best ever. So highly recommend it. And I thought your session was both entertaining, it was informative and thought-provoking, which is a combination that you seldom see all in one in, at a developer conference. So highly recommend well, it. Thank you very much. It's just years of practice. I mean, for all of you young people out there who, who are listening to this and they're saying, James, were you always this charismatic and amazing? The answer is no, actually. So when I was younger, uh, I was actually pretty shy uh, and I didn't really like presenting and I still don't like presenting now still. But, uh, you know, you get up there and I had a dream for, for this talk. And that dream was to take the hatred that I have for JavaScript and put that hate in other people's heart. Once again, I feel like this is sort of ending on a down note, but trust me, it's a cool talk. <laughs> so go, go watch it, you know, go watch it. And listen, if you find it, if you find that it's too dark, come talk to me and we can chat about things that aren't dark, you know, like rainbows or, you know, jazz, things like that. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. So, so where can they reach you if they want to talk about jazz and rainbows? Well, the first thing I'd recommend is actually, you know, make sure you've got something interesting to say before you contact me, really. You want to do some initial filtering. Uh, I think that's actually one of the biggest problems with the Internet right now. People don't filter stuff. This is why, like, when you go to Reddit or, like, the comments section of a, of a web page, it's just so simultaneously horrifying and amusing, you know? Like, my favorite type of comment on, uh, on the Internet is, like, there'll be some article, then there'll be a comment section, and then someone will post first, <laughs> plus one. Yeah, plus one. I, I'm the first one here. And it's like, why? Like, So first of all, why do you think that's interesting? Like, do you think that you're revealing something to me about counting? Like how being first works? It's like, I'm pretty sure I understand that because I'm smart enough to go to a web page. So presumably I can like understand ordinal numbers. Second thing, like you'll notice that on some of these web pages, it's the same person on different articles who's posting first. So what are you doing with your life? that you're just sitting around, like just trolling this web server, like waiting for new articles to show up, you're first. 
for that's clear. It's clear. It's like I just kind of envisioned these people just kind of like uh like salamander people just like trapped in a cave like a translucent skin just like golem just like waiting for these new articles to open just post up so anyways yeah getting back to your original question people want to contact me the first thing i say is do you really need to contact me actually that's what you think about and then if and, and don't just ask yourself ask other people that's another big problem in the internet too so like you go to these dating websites and people say like well you know, I consider myself funny, but do other people consider me <laughs> funny? That's the real yeah. thing, right? I considered myself tall when I was a child. I didn't make the basketball team. Question, why was that? Answer, I wasn't actually that tall. See, <laughs> so if you feel like you have something to tell me, I'd love to hear it if you actually have something to tell me. So ask your friends and don't just ask friends who are just going to say yes. Ask people like ask the meanest person who's still accurate whether you should write me. And if they say yes, then you should actually do it. Cool. Very good. Very good advice. Yeah. So, I wish I'd yeah. positive, you know? <laughs> always. Always. Yeah. So um, I know that when this show airs, it will be early 2015. So what, what is your prediction for this, this year, 2015? Yeah, I just I just have a feeling that I'm going to earn a lot of money in 2015. I don't really know where that money is going to come from. I just feel like I'm going to make a lot of money this year. And if anybody who's listening to this interview wants to give me a scholarship, just go ahead and send me some money. That'd be great. I would not throw that money away. Presumably, though, you asked me that question because you didn't want to talk about my own personal finances. Uh, so, you know, what do I think is going to be happening in you know the computing industry? Well, we touched a little bit on it uh, a little bit earlier in the interview. But I think it's an important point to reemphasize. I really do think that in 2015, people uh, will care more about security and privacy when it comes to the technology. Uh, now, note that I don't think they will care much more about it because people are much more interested in downloading Flappy Birds than understanding where their social security number is going to go. That's okay. They will care slightly more. So why do I think that they're going to care slightly more? Well, I think it's because we've actually had a lot of security and privacy-related events in the news recently. And they've been events that, you know, sort of like, the layperson can actually sort of understand and, and think about. So, you know, obviously there was the whole Snowden affair that made people think about the scope of government surveillance and and how, you know, the average person might be able to protect themselves from it. Um, just very recently, like this week, there was um, that hack on Sony, yeah. which was really super, super eye-opening. So mm -hmm. Sony's entire IT infrastructure was just completely devastated. Um, and so I think that that incident will really act as a wake-up call for a lot of companies mm -hmm. um, and universities and, and whoever, I mean, even end users, to really think about how they've set up their, their IT security because that was just a really powerful attack. Um, and then also I think that, you know, people are becoming more aware about online privacy just in the context of their own activity. So like the targeted ads we were just discussing, for example, I think people are starting, they've had experiences like the one that you've had, where they've gone to, you know, one website, and then gone to a totally different website and seen that browsing history follow them. I think a lot of people are starting to get weirded out by that. You know, in fact, if you look at all of the popular web browsers right now, they all have this incognito browsing mode, right? Mm. They all have this way that people can ostensibly try to erase some of these these tracks that they leave. So I think that's super interesting. I think that people on social networking uh, sites like Facebook, they're starting to push back a little bit about some of the data sharing policies those sites have. So anyway, so I, I think that the net outcome of all this is that, uh, you know, sort of lay people 
people who aren't necessarily in the IT industry are going to be more open to, to software and to services that are, are serious about um, protecting security and privacy. And so I don't think it's all going to change in one year. But I think that is a really sort of interesting and exciting trend from the perspective of a researcher, because that means that, you know, we can actually start thinking about, you know, how could I design a social networking service or an advertising service or something like that, that will provide the same types of um, sort of features as the current services that will also be free, like the current services, but will also somehow provide stronger uh, protections on user privacy or stronger trend, uh, stronger guarantees on data lifetime, for example. Right. You know, it might be the fact that, you know, you submit a tweet and maybe you really only want that thing to be around for a year, let's say, right? But right now, you don't really have any strong guarantees about that data lifetime. So I think it's interesting to think about as a researcher, you know, how can we build systems that that have this notion of data lifetime uh, built into it directly. So that, that's my big prediction for 2015, that people will, will start to care more about some of these security and privacy issues. That sounds interesting. I hope I hope you're right about this prediction. I, I think awareness is very important. I, I, it was actually interesting that you mentioned the Sony incident. I'm, I was surprised that some people haven't even heard about it, people that work in the industry. But when you, meant, when you also mentioned the privacy issue, how, how do you see this information being spread down even to younger audience, such as teenagers and kids that are using the social media site. I, I feel like they're not as aware as they should be. Well, yeah, so I think, so I think you're, that's correct. Although part of that, I think, comes just from the fact that kids are dumb. So, so that, I mean, I don't mean that, like, I used to be a kid, and I also used to be dumb. So I'm not trying to say, that, like, current kids are dumber than previous generations of youth. Uh, but I think what ends up happening is that there is kind of this meme that like, oh, the, 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 the younger generation doesn't care about privacy. I don't think that's quite true. I think what's happened though is that the, the, the current generation of young people, they're sort of the first generation who have come of age of this stuff. And because they're dumb, because they're kids, they don't fully understand the ramifications of, for example, what happens when they post a photo on Facebook of them doing stupid things at a party. And then, you know, five years later, they want to get a job and someone can see that picture who's an employer, for example. <laughs> you know, I think that, um, you know, as you see people get older, they care about this stuff more. And so to me, I don't really think there's been this generational shift in terms of people caring more or less about privacy. I think that these issues have just become more prevalent all of a sudden for young people. Um, and there hasn't been very good, for lack of a better term, education about, you know, how you should post to things like Facebook and how you should set your privacy settings. And part of the reason that it's difficult to educate people about this is because these policies are very difficult to understand. So, for example, like I've set my privacy policies on Facebook. I literally have no idea what impact that has. Mm. Like literally none. I mean, like I go through the little thing and I check certain boxes and I uncheck other boxes and there's like a slider and like I'll do that. I have no idea what that means that people can see. Like I think that I've constrained what they can see. I don't know. I just, you know, it's a, it's in Zeus's hands now. Um, so I think that that's actually sort of another interesting area for, I'm not sure if it's research or just for you know, area for legislation or something like that. But it's like, you know, how can we encourage companies to... Uh, create privacy policies that are understandable. And I don't want to beat up just on Facebook there. I mean, it's all these companies, right? Yeah. We've all had this experience where we download some software or we sign up for some site. And then before we can actually sign up, there's this huge end-user license agreement that shows up. 
right? And so, of course, we're not going to read that. Of course not, right? Because, listen, I want to, you know, uh, play this game that Kim Kardashian's invented. Sure, let me sign away all my privacy, right? So, of course, we're going to click OK. Um, and so, you know, I think it's actually a big challenge at this, at sort of the, the, I don't know, like I said, maybe it's the policy level, maybe it's for politicians to figure out, for legislation to take place, I don't know. But there's this big challenge of, of, of somehow convincing these companies to explain these privacy policies in a way that both makes sense and actually somehow gives uh, more authority to the users to be able to determine how they share their data. Now, like I said, that's going to be – the companies will push back on that because they keep these services free in many cases by monetizing private data, by making these things targeted. So as I said, that's where I think there's a key research contribution to be made to be able to allow these web services to, to, in a certain sense, monetize your privacy without actually exposing your data directly to them. That's interesting. Uh, I think um, what you're saying is very valid. Uh, I, maybe there's a reason why it is a little bit confusing from the company's point of view, because they want to keep it as open as possible for them, but at the same time, give the user a sense of feel that they are in control, even though, like you say, it doesn't really uh, come across that way. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I mean, I I have no, I'm, it just, these things are mysterious to me. Like, I, I, I mean, I sometimes, like, you know, received messages on LinkedIn from people I don't know. I thought that I disabled that. I, I guess I didn't. I, can you disable that? I, I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. And it's the kind of thing where, if you think too much about it, it's just going to keep you up at night. So you can't worry too much about it. But that is kind of like wacky that just some random person can just find me on LinkedIn and just be like, hey, what's up? It's like, what's up with you? Who are you? Where do you come from? These are these very existential questions. Cool. Well, I like the fact that you mentioned that uh, uh, to give me hope about that kids will grow and get wiser by age that that sounds awesome yeah. people will there's a hope for everyone but unfortunately that means that there's no greater hope for mankind since you're saying that all kids are stupid and will remain that way forever <laughs> there's, yeah, there's, there's there's nothing we can do about that and i actually wish that people would understand this sooner because the thing is like people don't seem to understand that you know, like maybe you've been at a party or something like that, and then somebody brings their kid. It's like, first of all, that's a party foul. Don't bring your kids to a party. Like, listen, you have a kid, go to like a kid party. Don't come to an adult party and you've got a kid. That's a drag. I want to talk about adult things like gambling or whatever, <laughs> just like some movie that has curse words in it. I don't need your kid around ruining my cool. Anyway, so the kid comes up and then, you know, the kid will be running around and the kid will do something like, uh, you know, oh, daddy, why can't. Why can't I walk through a door? It's like you can't walk through a door because you're not a ghost. That's why you can't walk through That's like a dumb thing to say. Like why can't I walk through a door? Well, kids are stupid. Now, that's kind of cute, right? That's funny. They don't understand physics, right? But like that problem will never go away. Like there will never be a generation of youths, like five-year-olds running around being like, why can't, I, why can't I walk through a door? It seems reasonable. That's not reasonable. <laughs> it only seems reasonable to you because you know nothing. And that will eventually get better, hopefully. But that's just the way it has to be, I guess. So I just, it's it's problematic. If somehow I woke up and somehow I'd been given like a six-month-old baby, I just tell people, put me in a coma, wake me up when that baby's 18 years old. I just, <laughs> I just can't deal with it. I have so much respect for parents, you know, except for the ones who bring their kids apart. Like I said, that, that, that shouldn't happen. But I mean, it's just, it's a lot going on. 
<laughs> cool. Uh, I think it's about time to wrap this up. But to summarize, I guess, watch your video, the talk, yeah. and don't bring kids to parties. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Also, too, like I said, I'm I'm willing to receive a scholarship from somebody, oh, yeah. possibly multiple people. So just that is one type of communication you should definitely send to me if you want to sponsor me. So just yeah, you know how to find me. Super. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening. All right. See you guys later.